Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's a new day for sunscreens. After 33 years, the FDA finally comes up with new rules for labels and sun protection factors. Our concern is that the higher SPF numbers really provide a false sense of security and allow you to be overexposed to UV radiation, even though you think you may be even better protected. We shed some light on sunscreens. Also, the sun sets on the long count Maya calendar. Don't say we didn't warn you. 2012, the uh, Maya prophecy says the world are the way that we know is going to change. What is going to be ending is going to be a term of time of 5,125 years. And we are part of that. But we don't know what's going to happen in 2012. And an accidental discovery finds bugs in the soil fuel climate change. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Nitrous oxide is commonly known as laughing gas, but there's nothing funny about its effects on climate change. Biologist Bruce Hungate accidentally discovered that during wildfires, huge amounts of nitrous oxide in the soil are released into the atmosphere. It all has to do with microscopic bugs in the soil that give off laughing gas. Bruce Hungate is a professor at Northern Arizona University. Bacteria called denitrifiers use nitrate in respiration, just like humans use oxygen. And in the process, they produce nitrous oxide. Fires promote conditions in the soil that favor production of nitrous oxide by these soil microorganisms. They're microscopic, but their impacts are global by producing this greenhouse gas. And in fact, most of the nitrous oxide in the atmosphere comes from these tiny creatures. So how potent is nitrous oxide as a greenhouse gas compared to, say, carbon dioxide? So on a molecule-per-molecule basis, nitrous oxide is 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. It's a very potent greenhouse gas. So you studied grasslands, right? Right. Would I find uh, nitrous oxide and these little bugs that produce it um, in forests? Denitrifiers are everywhere. They're in soils all around the world, and they produce nitrous oxide from these soils all around the world. And there actually have been a lot of experiments looking at the impacts of fire on nitrous oxide production from forests as well. It turns out, especially in the tropics, and often there what you see is after a fire, you get more nitrous oxide emitted from soil. And we didn't know about this forest fire nitrous oxide uh, relationship before? What we did know is that, in general, after a fire, nitrous oxide emissions often go up. So we knew that before. What we didn't know is how fires interact with these other components of the changing environment. And in our experiment, that was the real surprise. You were running a series of experiments, and you had a bunch of test plots, as I understand it, and that's where you made your discovery. That's right. We started this experiment back in 1998 in a grassland in California, where we actually changed the physical environment around test plots to try to simulate the environment of the future. We focused on four ongoing global environmental changes. More CO2 in the atmosphere. So some plots have tubes that release extra CO2 into the atmosphere around the growing plants. And also warming. We have infrared heat lamps over some plots to make them warmer. 
extra nitrogen deposition. Some plots get an extra dose of nitrogen, simulating higher industrial activity and its effect on the atmosphere in the future. And then also rainfall. Some plots have sprinklers that simulate more rain. So we had each of these changes by itself, and then in every possible combination with the other global changes, it was really complex. And then a downed power line caused a fire that burned part of it. At first, we were really worried about damage to the experiment, but it turned into an opportunity. The fire burned only part of it, so we still had controls to quantify the impact of the fire, along with the background of all these global environmental changes. So instead of losing the experiment, we got an even more complex experiment. Um, Very complex, but also interesting and exciting with these new results. So this accidental fire leads to this surprising finding that uh, you can have accelerated global warming due to the nitrous oxide in the, the soil being released, essentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was a surprising result. When we looked at each of these things by itself, we wouldn't have been able to predict the result we got. So you get this intense burst of nitrous oxide. So it's not long-lasting? Or, I mean, well, actually it is. It, it was a, um, a delayed reaction. The pulse of nitrous oxide after fire lasted about three years. And that was another surprising finding because past work on fires and nitrous oxide emissions haven't shown quite as long-lasting an effect. We think that might have to do with the combination of the global environmental changes along with the fire that really promoted nitrous oxide production. So, Professor, let me play out the scenario. So you, if you have a wildfire, it releases this nitrous oxide into the atmosphere. It affects climate change dramatically. It gets warmer and causes the conditions for more wildfires. You've got a a feedback loop here. That's exactly right. It's where climate change leads to more fires, which in turn lead to more climate change. And it's not just nitrous oxide. These fires also produce carbon dioxide and methane. So they're important sources of greenhouse gases. Whoa. Well, we're having intense wildfires around the United States, Arizona, Texas, uh, Florida... We're having wildfires that are unprecedented in terms of their size and in terms of their intensity and their duration. That's right. I'm really concerned about these fires. The Wallow Fire in my home state, Arizona, has burned over 450,000 acres. It's the largest in our state's history. But I'm also concerned because we can expect more of these large and intense fires in the future. Warming promotes fire weather, and the forests of the southwest are loaded with fuel, many and densely packed trees. That combination makes these systems especially susceptible to intense fires. We're playing with loaded dice in our, with our climate system. And when we look at things like fire, having more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere appears to make a longer fire season, a more intense fire season, more likely. The fact that we're seeing some of those effects now is exactly consistent with what we expect from climate change. Well, Professor, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Bruce Hungate is a professor of biology at Northern Arizona University. He joined us from a conference in Iceland. It's time for Fun in the Sun. So grab your bathing suit, your beach towel, and don't forget your sunscreen. The stuff you slather all over your body and your kids to keep away those summer rays. But while it says sunblock, it may not be blocking as much sun as you thought. After 33 years, there's something new under the sun. The FDA is finally taking action on the labeling and ingredients in sunscreen. 
David Andrews is senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group, which has been investigating and assessing sunscreens for many years. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. 33 years. Why has it taken more than three decades for the FDA to come up with regulations for sunscreen? It's taken 33 years this far, and, and, and it's still continuing. At this point, FDA has just released a small portion of the regulations that cover sunscreen. And really, this announcement, taken in its entirety, is, is relatively underwhelming considering the amount of time that it's taken to get here. Well, let's look at exactly what the FDA has come up with so far. Well, the FDA has taken a few actions with this recent announcement, specifically related to not allowing unsubstantiated claims. So this includes the use of sunblock, waterproof, and sweatproof. These are advertising claims that are, in fact, incorrect. You can't use the word sunblock anymore? That's correct. Um, None of these sunscreens completely block the sun, but they do provide a level of sun protection. So what didn't the FDA do that you would have liked to have seen done? We would have really liked to see the FDA limit the SPF to 50. SPF being the sun protection factor, that number we see on the bottle. Correct. SPF being the the number that that everyone associates with sunscreens. This was in their proposed 2007 rule that SPF should be limited to 50. And in this case, really, FDA has decided to delay action on this, even though they have noted that they see no benefit to higher SPF. Some of these things have uh, sun protector factors of, you know, 65 plus. There are a large number of sunscreens on the market that are claiming increasingly higher number in terms of the sun protection factor. Um, This year, we see a number of products that claim SPFs of 100 or greater. So if I had an SPF of 100, would that be twice as good as 50? In terms of sun protection, it provides a very marginal difference. Maybe 1%, it blocks 1% more of the, the UV radiation. Our concern is that the higher SPF numbers really provide a false sense of security and allow you to be overexposed to UV radiation, even though you think you may be even better protected. Now, we all know that the sun has two major components, right? They have UVA, ultraviolet A, and ultraviolet B. I always forget which one causes the sunburn. Which one's that? UVB is primarily responsible for sunburn. It's a higher energy radiation and causes direct skin damage. UVA is a lower energy radiation. It's more prevalent but penetrates deeper into our skin and causes longer-term health damage, melanoma and skin cancer, as well as skin aging. And yet, at this time, there's not direct scientific evidence that sunscreen use alone can prevent or even reduce your risk of skin cancer. Boy, talk about a false sense of security. I think most people are putting this stuff on to prevent sunburn and prevent skin cancer. That's my primary concern or motivator for using sunscreen on myself and on my children is really that long-term risk of skin cancer is what's always in the back of my mind when I apply it. And I think the public really needs to be aware that sunscreen needs to be used in conjunction with a sun protection strategy that includes clothing, umbrellas, all these steps to reduce exposure to UV radiation. So what do you uh, slather on your kids? Primarily, I look for sunscreens that provide very strong UVA protection. And Currently on the market, there's two active ingredients that are in the majority of products that may provide this strong UVA protection, and that's zinc or avabenzone. By and large, these products are the safest and the most effective currently on the market in terms of providing sun protection. Are there ingredients in sunscreens um, that we should avoid? 
One ingredient that Environmental Working Group has really highlighted as a, as a chemical of concern in sunscreens is retinal palmitate or vitamin A, a form of vitamin A. And this ingredient is relatively prevalent in sunscreens that over 30% of the sunscreens on the market have this ingredient. And yet, in 10 years of studies that have been conducted by the FDA, it's been shown that this ingredient really promotes skin tumor growth in, in animals exposed to sunlight. So the concern is that you're applying this ingredient on your skin, you're going into the sun, and the ingredient breaks down and may actually speed the growth of skin tumors. So what happens now? They've released these new regulations. When do they go in effect? Early next spring, the regulations are in effect for, for the large manufacturers. So consumers will be seeing the, the updated sunscreen bottles next summer on the shelves. Well, I'm going in the sun this summer. What do I do? Well, use sunscreen as part of a larger sun protection strategy. And when you're looking for specific sunscreens, make sure to look for products that provide broad-spectrum protection and, and really dig down and look for specific ingredients, zinc, avobenzone, and to a lesser extent, titanium dioxide, as these products or these ingredients provide broad-spectrum protection. Well, David, thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. David Andrews is Senior Scientist at the Environmental Working Group. For more information and a list of recommended sunscreens, go to our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, weather that's out of this world. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. From time to time, we offer up a cool fix for a hot planet. No sweat ways to cut energy use and save some money in the bargain. And we always challenge you to come up with cool fix ideas. And here's one from Walnut Creek, California. My name is David Ogden. I listen to Living on Earth on KQED in San Francisco. My energy-saving idea is to turn the oven off ahead of time when you're heating up a frozen dinner or other frozen item. By turning it off five or ten minutes ahead of the actual done time, you're going to shut the oven off and save some gas or electricity. So I found that after five minutes, there's a temperature drop of 29 degrees. After eight minutes, temperature drops 56 degrees. And after 10 minutes, temperature drops 68 degrees. So if you're doing something like baking a cake or bread or something that needs a very specific temperature, you probably don't want to do this. But for other items like frozen entrees and TV dinners, it seems to me that that's a good way to save some energy. Thanks, David. And if you can't stand the heat, send your Cool Fix tip our way. Our email address is coolfix, that's one word, coolfix at LOE.org. Or post it on our Facebook page, that's PRI's Living on Earth. And if we use your great idea on the app, we'll send you a shiny electric blue tire gauge so you can keep your tires properly inflated, save some dough, and cool the planet. If you think the weather on Earth has been weird lately, wait till you hear about the weather in space. In terms of sheer destructive potential, storms from intense solar flares striking the planet make terrestrial weather puny in comparison. And we're on the cusp of a period of increased activity. Joseph Conscious is a scientist at the Space Weather Prediction Center at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Bruce. So, space weather. What's space weather? 
Well, space weather is the condition that occurs when the sun erupts, basically. And, and the sun is an interesting star, given the fact that it's our closest star, and it's basically responsible for all life on Earth. <laughs> but other than that, it also has a magnetic field. And the magnetic field sometimes strengthens and sometimes wanes. And when it's strong, the magnetic field can come unstable, and it can let go its energy, and we get all sorts of stuff that we refer to as space weather. Lately, uh, in the last few years, we've been going through a quiet cycle. Yes, that's right. It's known sunspots are markers for these strong magnetic fields, and the record is pretty conclusive in that there is about an 11-year season so-called solar cycle, and as you suggest, been very quiet. But now, uh, in the last oh, six months or so, conditions have changed, and we're starting to see the emergence of the brand-new solar cycle. Well, you're one of the chief sunspot predictors and solar weather forecasters. What are you predicting? Well, I think the activity will continue to pick up. We saw a big flare a few days ago. Uh, we saw one this morning through the rest of 2011. We can expect an increase in these eruptive types of activity. The height of the solar cycle is probably going to be around two years from now, in the middle of 2013. I guess the real thing that we have to worry about is what's called uh, coronal mass ejections. Do I have that right? The first manifestation of the eruption is what's called a solar flare, which is a little bit like a lightning bolt. Another part of the eruption is when the outer solar atmosphere, the corona, gets blown away in conjunction with the flare, and we refer to this as a coronal mass ejection. And the sun goes about throwing out coronal mass ejections as it will, and sometimes we just happen to get in the way. So you have to predict not just when we have one of these events, but if it's going to hit us. We absolutely have to predict the path of it. It's a little bit like being a hitter in a baseball game. We watch the coronal mass ejection be the pitch, and we have to estimate if it's coming right at us and if it's fast or slow and even if it's going to curve or not. And if I'm on Earth and there's a solar storm, I'm not going to know it or I will know it? Space weather is kind of esoteric to people. It isn't the wind that blows the hat off your head or your garbage can down the street, but rather it's the conditions far up in the atmosphere that affect systems, electric power being one. So when the sun is eruptive, a byproduct of that is a problem for electric power grid operators. In the extreme, those currents go quickly out of control. And for example, back in 1989, there was a solar eruption that caused the power grid in eastern Canada, Hydro-Quebec, to go from proper functioning conditions to a total blackout in 92 seconds as a consequence of the induced currents from the space weather. So we have systems like power grids that could be zapped. What about things like GPS satellites? If there was bad solar weather, would it affect my ability to find directions. Bad space weather could affect your ability to find directions because of the signal that comes from the GPS satellite, not the satellite, but its transmission, gets affected as it tries to make its way through this charged particle environment that lies overhead and is very turbulent and irregular when space weather is bad. What about uh, critical national security systems that depend on GPS? I think it's fair to say that 
every use of GPS, be it a defense or, or national security use, be it a commonplace use of GPS, the single largest error source of that system is space weather. I was reading that we had um, intense solar weather back in 1921, and and then the the granddaddy, is, at least in terms of uh, recorded history here in the United States, was 1859. Yes, there there are indications that in 1859 the so-called Carrington event was really quite spectacular in terms of the impacts on the technologies as they existed in those days. The telegraph wires were actually affected and, and lit up <laughs> literally with sparks and, and all sorts of indications of electrical currents. Would you say that our electric grid, would you say that that's more vulnerable today? I think the power grid is more vulnerable today. It is highly interconnected, and a pulse to a part of the grid will ripple through it, will have to be accounted for, even if that pulse occurs very distant from where you are. If it's in the northeast United States, here in the west, the operators would have to know of this condition so they can take that into account just because things are so very interconnected now. A recent National Academy of Science report paints a very bleak picture of what could happen to our society if we really do get zapped by a powerful solar weather. The National Academy report tried to look at these technologies and try to put some estimates as to if things went badly. What would be the effects on satellite navigation and power grids and other things? And one of the issues with the electric power grid is that many of the key elements, the transformers, are not off-the-shelf devices. And if you were to damage a few of them, there aren't many ready spares around. So some of the angst would be related to just the delay time in terms of trying to replace these things and get the grid back up and running again. And building transformers when you don't have electricity is probably pretty darn difficult. <laughs> that would be that'd be a real trick, wouldn't it? The National Academy report about the potential damage from solar weather says that it could cost an estimated two trillion dollars, and the chaos could last ten years. I think the National Academy tried to expose some of the soft spots in terms of technologies and make estimates given the kinds of dependencies we've developed now. If the sun were to erupt, and it, there's no reason to think that it won't, the only question is when, and will we be ready for that when it occurs? Joseph Kunches, thank you so very much. Bruce, you're welcome. Joseph Kunches is a scientist at the Space Weather Prediction Center in Boulder, Colorado. Since the beginning of recorded time, there have been predictions of the end of time. The last time was just last May. On May 21, 2011, the date of the rapture, each and every saved person goes to heaven. How can anyone dare to dispute with the Bible concerning the absolute truth that the beginning of the day of judgment, together with the rapture, will occur on May 21, 2011? Of course, in the end, the end didn't occur. The apocalypse was delayed due to matters of biblical interpretation and math errors. But wait, the end is near again. The Internet is filled with fire and brimstone videos and books prophesying the approaching apocalypse based upon the exquisitely precise astronomical calculations of the ancient Maya. 
According to the Maya calendar, this cycle of creation will cease to exist at precisely four Ahau, three Kenkin. Sunday, December 23rd, 2012. According to this New Age interpretation of ancient Maya time-telling, Doomsday is just around the corner. Will you be ready? Well, it depends. Seems there's some dispute even among Maya end of the world watchers. Doomsday could either be December 23rd, 2012, when a cosmic collision with planet X Nibiru destroys Earth, or our demise could come on December 21st at exactly 1111 Universal Time. That's the winter solstice, and for the first time in 25,765 years, the sun will align with the center of the Milky Way. But before abandoning all hope and earthly possessions, I decided to find out what's behind the Maya doomsday prophecy. So I traveled to the Maya ruins of Chichen Itza on Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. I love Chichen Itza. I like Chichen Itza a lot. That's why I like to be here and I like to show to the people and share with the people my history, my culture. On a warm, windy day, I met veteran Chichen Itza guide Jorge Marina Ventura at the magnificent 1,300-year-old ruins. Chichen Itza was a religious capital for the Mayas. It was one of the most important cities of the whole Mayan territory at the pre-Hispanic time. By the time Spanish conquistadors arrived at Chichen Itza in 1526, the city had been abandoned for nearly 500 years. The collapse of the Maya civilization at Chichen Itza and the disappearance of their ancestors who lived centuries before in the lowlands of Central America comprise one of the great archaeological mysteries of our time. Scientists have searched these ruins high and low looking for answers. So did I. Whoa, look at this. This is the pyramid of Kukulkan or Quetzalcoatl. And both words means the feather serpent. The pyramid at Chichen Itza towers over the landscape. Sound echoes as tour guides clap to demonstrate the extraordinary acoustics of this sacred place. At the equinox, a shadow of the feathered serpent can be seen slithering down one of the four staircases. Each has exactly 91 steps. Added together with the top platform, that equals 365, the days in a solar year. The Maya had only stone tools and lacked the wheel, yet they were master mathematicians, architects, and astronomers. What happened is the pyramid, it was working as a calendar and at the same time was an astronomical observatory. Was it accurate? Oh yeah, definitely, yes. The Mayan calendar, uh, I dare say it was the most accurate calendar that a human being ever had. And right after the Maya, the next one is our calendar, the Gregorian calendar. So these people had a great knowledge about astronomy. The Maya had not one calendar, but three. The solar calendar, a religious calendar of 260 days, and the long count. Precisely 1,872,000 days, or 5,125.36 years, starting from the time the Maya believed the world began. The long count ends in December 2012. 2012, the uh, Maya prophecy says the world, the way that we know, is going to change. What is going to be ending is going to be a term of time of 5,125 years, and we are part of that. But we don't know what's going to happen in 2012. Well, I searched for and found an expert who really should know. 
I'm William Saturno. I'm an archaeologist at Boston University. My specialty is the ancient Maya. Is the world going to end on December 21st, 2012? I wouldn't bet on it. That's unlikely. I mean, I guess it's as likely to end on that date as any date before it or after it in reality. Professor Saturno says time is relative. It's all a matter of which calendar you use. Now, there may be different calendars. You might be in year 5264. You know, this Jewish calendar uses different numbers. The Chinese calendar uses different numbers. But all of them represent a count since we started counting. And the Maya long count is just that. Now, the Maya long count is sort of interesting to us because it works sort of like an odometer in your car. Now, just as in a car, you used to only have enough digits in an odometer for 100,000 miles. Although that marks a great passing, most of us are pretty sure that our car isn't going to vanish at 100,000 miles, that the car doesn't, in fact, come to an end, right? That, oh, my God, I'm approaching 100,000 miles. It's going to explode. It'll disappear. I'll be in it. What if my kids are in it? We don't, we don't bother ourselves with that. We know that even if all of the zeros go back to zero, we know that it's not going to disappear. Actually, scientists believe 65 million years ago, much of life on Earth did disappear when a giant meteorite struck the northern Yucatan coast, not far from Chichen Itza. Jorge, my guide, says the cataclysmic impact also helped create the cenotes, or underground limestone sinkholes, that today store most of the water on the arid peninsula. This is the sacred cenote. They believe that the rain god was living at these cenotes. Actually, at the Chichen Itza area, there are about eight of them. Eight. In this dry place with no above-ground rivers or sizable lakes, the water-filled sinkholes were life-sustaining. And some were sacrificial sites, as archaeologists discovered when they drained the sacred cenote. In this one, the archaeologists took out uh, 251 human skeletons so far. They were sacrifices, sir. They would jump alive into the sinkhole. Again, an offering to the god. An offering to the god, to the rain god, Yum Chak, that they thought that was living in this sinkhole here. Apparently, the sacrifices weren't sufficient. The rain god didn't deliver. Around the 9th century, the Yucatan suffered a severe drought, made worse by deforestation. The Maya had cut down the forest, clearing the land to grow crops for their cities. You know, the drought would bring a lot of problems like no food and fights, you know, invasions. And at the end of the season, the people got to went away looking for a better place to live. The people don't die and vanish. The U archaeologist William Saturno. When we talk about the collapse of Maya, what they're really talking about is the collapse of government. There's evidence for drought. You know, a few drought years would lead to big problems on a social level. Is it the cause? But it's not the drought that causes the collapse. It's a human response that causes collapse. So what is the lesson, if any, that we can learn from the Maya? The lesson is a very poignant one. The lesson is really that we need to be more flexible, that we need to have the flexibility that enables us to see the writing on the wall and then react to it. Because if we can't react, all the lessons we can learn are simply lessons for the next generation, the generation that rebuilds after collapse. Boston University archaeologist William Saturno. And as the Maya long count completes its cycle, a reminder. 
that all things come to an end and navigating the time left for our civilization is in our hands. Coming up, taking a page out of Thoreau's Lessons for Living. Stay tuned. It's Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. And the Sierra Club, welcoming students back to college with Sierra Magazine's annual ranking of America's coolest schools. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Henry David Thoreau wrote about living deliberately, taking up residence in the woods to learn what the natural world could teach. Writer Tom Montgomery Fate took Thoreau's words to heart to see if he could also live deliberately. He spoke with Living on Earth Steve Kerwood about his new book, Cabin Fever, A Suburban Father's Search for the Wild. Tom Montgomery Fate, your book is about the challenges and the chaos of modern life, of being a father to three a husband, a college teacher, uh, wrestling with the high-speed technological world we now live in, while at the same time trying to live what Thoreau calls a deliberate life. How difficult is it to find that balance? I think it's hard. I, and I think if I say anything in here, I hope it's that it is a balancing act, that it's not really achievable. Just it's kind of the process of always trying to find the balance. I think when I first read Walden when I was 17, and I was really struck by that line, I went to the woods to live deliberately, then it meant more like to live intensely or intentionally. But in middle age, I was reading it again, and I took a moment and looked the word up and saw that it was tied to the the word Libra. And then I thought, oh, that's that fits my life now is this search for balance, the two-pan scale of justice, always trying to to weigh things and to balance things because there are too many things. So you have this cabin out in the woods. Um how does this affect your parenting, having this cabin? Well, in a couple of ways. I mean, one is, and sometimes my wife Carol goes up alone, not, admittedly not as often as I have, and sometimes we go with one kid or two kids, and sometimes we all go. Um, I, I think having the time apart and having a chance to kind of uh, re-energize and do a little discernment, like anybody, you, you come back to the rather chaotic life a little more balanced, um, and I think that's one of the real benefits of it. And also, when we go with the kids, of course, it's a chance for them to tune out a little bit. There's no VCR or all the technological gadgets or anything like that, and we walk a lot. And so um, I think it's good space for them as well. Why call your book Cabin Fever? You know, it, it was meant as kind of a conversation with Thoreau. So when I think about Cabin Fever during the era he lived in the 19th century, you think of people living in Iowa or Nebraska or Ohio, snowed in in the middle of January, and for them, cabin fever meant isolation, and it meant maybe depression, it meant a longing to get out, a longing to escape that isolation, to get back to more people and technology and more choices and maybe an apple and some other uh, food choices, et cetera, et cetera. But the paradox for me and what I'm trying to write about is, I think, and this is admittedly a kind of um, a middle-class desire maybe more, I don't know, is that now cabin fever is the desire to escape 
to that isolation, to get back to some quiet, less choices, maybe a closer connection to the natural world, uh, those kinds of things. Except at one point in your book, you you feel too lonely. You, you, you've escaped to this. This is a dream, but, but you're on your cell phone. You're trying to call your kids and your wife. Uh, that's true. <laughs> and I, I suppose that's uh, revelatory of... Um, uh, my human failings and this kind of difficulty of living between, uh, this is one thing we balance, is loneliness and solitude. Solitude being a positive emotional and spiritual state where maybe we're doing a lot of discernment and loneliness, feeling bad um, and um, lonely and wanting to get back to the people that matter to us most. Uh, Tom, the subtitle of your book is The Suburban Father's Search for the Wild. And i got to say, after reading your book, it doesn't seem to me that your cabin is in exactly the most wild parts <laughs> of Michigan. You've got, what, a six- or an eight-lane highway, uh, it sounds like, uh, with an earshot of the place. And uh, yeah. if you go for a walk, you can hit the local bar. How possible is it to have a, a Thoreauian experience of wilderness and commuting with nature when you've got 18-wheelers rumbling uh, as the soundtrack? Well, I think the the idea of the wild that uh, Thoreau talks about is is not so much pristine or exotically pristine um, fauna or flora. I mean, I, th- I think it's more about the search for this kind of deep connection among all things or the sense of relatedness. When he references the word religion, I often think of the etymology of that word, religare, which means to tie together again. And I think for him, religious experience even is this search for this deep connection of, of all things in creation, um, this relatedness. Um, and I think he found that in his study of uh, Indian philosophy, i.e. American Indian philosophy. At this point, I'd like you to read an excerpt from Cabin Fever. It's on page 54. This is where you write about Henry David Thoreau's mention of a certain fertile sadness, a sadness that he finds joyful because it saves his life from being trivial. When this joyful sadness wells up in Thoreau's work, I feel an odd mix of envy and admiration about the exuberance he always finds. Both in the woods and in the words. In Walden, he discovers joy in everything from a stinking, decaying horse carcass to a weedy bean field. Though I don't readily find joy in sadness, I'm trying to read that way, to think more like Thoreau, to see light merging with darkness, hope lingering in shadow but it's not working. I keep getting stuck in the mud of my trivial life. Should Bennett try out for travel soccer, or is he too young? Why is our sewer line clogged again when I just rotted it? How did our entire yard become a creeping Charlie plantation? When are Carol and I ever going to have a night to ourselves? A joyful sadness. Right, that's right. And also just the idea that, again, joyful sadness is is the balancing, you know, that that's the beauty of things. Another place in the book I talk about the relationship between patience and passion, that they both share the Latin root pati, which means to suffer. And this idea is that patience and passion seem to be opposites, but they're actually, you know, share this, this common Latin root. And again, the idea is that that suffering isn't always a bad thing and that patience isn't always a bad thing, that they're, again, balancing these things is where one finds happiness, that, that sadness actually defines joy, that without sadness we can't discover joy, that kind of thing. 
So reading your book, it occurred to me that this isn't only about your exploration of how to live a more deliberate life, as Henry David Thoreau did, but also about the circle of life, that how you see yourself and your children and want to experience life and the world around you with them more deliberately. Right, that continuity. And I think that's part of the reason I write about the cabin in Michigan is because I went there with my father when I was my son's age and younger, five, six, seven. Uh, He was a pastor in Illinois, and there was a church camp very near where um, our cabin is, and we went there every summer. And so when I walked through those woods and uh, along Lake Michigan and in the water, I it's it's very um, a powerful continuity for me. I feel like a child, and I, I feel like a father. Tom Montgomery Fate's new book is Cabin Fever, Suburban Father's Search for the Wild. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you. To listen to some more excerpts from Tom's book, go to our website, LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. commemorates the abolition of slavery in the United States, first announced in June of 1865. But life for former slaves didn't improve immediately. Many of those newly freed men and women forced to work as sharecroppers found a champion in George Washington Carver. Carver was an educator, inventor, and botanist, perhaps most famous for his work with the peanut. But he also worked tirelessly to pull black farmers out of poverty through sustainable farming practices. And the work he started at Tuskegee Institute continues today. Ike Shreeskandaraja reports for Living on Earth and our sister program, Planet Harmony. Tuskegee Institute was famously founded by Booker T. Washington. It's famous for the Tuskegee Airmen and infamous for the syphilis experiments. Before that, this area in Macon County, Alabama, was the center of American cotton production. Nearly half a million slaves lived in this Black Belt region named not for the people, but the dark, rich soil they worked. When George Washington Carver stepped off the train from the Midwest in 1896, pests and cotton monoculture had severely depleted the fertile earth and the people along with it. Carver had grown up a frail, sick child with a voice damaged by illness, but he felt he had been chosen by God to serve. Here he reads from a favorite poem called Equipment. And a man who has risen great deeds to do began his life with no more than you. You are the handicapped you must face. You are the one who must choose your place. Carver chose Tuskegee, committing his life to helping the exploited people and exploited land. To him, these were the same target. Sustainable agriculture was his silver bullet, and peanuts were a part of his plan. Legumes were grown as a cover crop to feed the depleted soil with nitrogen. Carver took this bioremediation crop into the lab and came up with countless ways to take the lowly goober to market. His hundreds of innovations brought him fame, but didn't bring prosperity to the impoverished farmers. Dr. Walter Hill is dean of the agriculture school at Tuskegee. We're going to try to complete the job that he didn't quite finish. Getting back to our people, those poor farmers and families get a better quality life and at the same time improve the environment. Dean Hill took me to the fields to show me what they're doing. But before that, I went in search of Carver with Dana Chandler, Tuskegee Institute's archivist. 
Archivist, yeah, whatever that means. <laughs> I want to take you in here, I'll start in here actually, to show you some things about Carver. In a basement room, cardboard boxes full of Carver's belongings are piled up to the ceiling. Chandler squeezes between overstuffed shelves, stopping to point out a microscope from Carver's lab, a well-worn Bible, and picks up one of Carver's field notebooks. Ike, you want to hold it? I mean, it's a piece of history, buddy, that nobody's seen in many years. The notebook smells of smoke. It was rescued from a fire. It's crinkly and flakes to the touch. But the pages are alive with Carver's observations about the natural world. Notes on crop rotation, tables with soil measurements, crawling with drawings of vines and flowering plants sketched in painstaking detail. But there's little here about peanuts. Even though most school children learn about Carver's 300 uses for the peanut, and it's inspired countless jokes. Here's Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live. This tastes pretty good, man. Mind if we take a peek at the recipe? And Dr. Carver says, take a peek? <laughs> man, you can have it. Who's going to eat butter made out of peanuts? No, no, I'm working on the method to compress peanuts into phonograph needles. <laughs> you know, peanut butter wasn't invented by Carver. It was not. That's a common mistake, you know. The peanut was kind of forced upon him by the Peanut Growers Association uh, took advantage of him as the peanut man. In 1921, the Peanut Association asked George Washington Carver to make a case to Congress for a favorable peanut tariff. So he trekked to Washington with his peanut-based milk, instant coffee, ice creams, dyes, pomade, and entire peanut-inspired meals. As Carver began his show-and-tell, one congressman from Connecticut asked if he'd brought any watermelon, too. Carver sidestepped the racist dig. You know, he said, we can get along pretty well without dessert. His expertise and wit won over the committee, won the tariff, and won him the status of an American icon. People can read into him what they want to read into him. Mark Hersey, an assistant professor of history at Mississippi State University, just wrote an environmental biography of Carver. My work is that of conservation. It's only the third scholarly book on the famous scientist. Hersey met me in a small cemetery at the heart of Tuskegee's campus by Carver's simple headstone. George Washington Carver died in Tuskegee, Alabama, January 5th, 1943. A life that stood out as a gospel of self-forgetting service. He could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful in the world. The center of his world was the South, where he was born in slavery some 79 years ago, and where he did his work as a creative scientist. The creative scientist legacy may be in legumes, but Hersey argues that Carver's real contribution was conservation. He had a great appreciation for, for wild areas, a great appreciation for beauty and for forests. But he was mostly interested in this sort of lived-in world. And as our population grows, there's more and more lived-in places. I think he saw more clearly the directions in which the environmental movement would eventually go and has since come. Carver could be seen as the father of the environmental justice movement, working in impoverished and resource-poor environments. But his brand of science and spirituality is still singular. Carver could see, he would call it God's hand, he could see the beauties of nature everywhere. You know, when he was conducting his experiments, he would sometimes seek the miraculous nature of what was happening. The place where he worked is now called the George Washington Carver Agricultural Experiment Station. 
Dr. Walter Hill now sits in Carver's chair as the head of the College of Agricultural, Environmental, and Natural Sciences at Tuskegee. We drive up to the windy fields. Turn on the car and we're getting ready to proceed into the experiment station. And you can even see on our left, you see the fields in front of us, the grasslands, where you, cattle grazing lands, you see the greenhouses in the distance. Now we're passing the goats. Uh, you're going to see a lot of that. The dirt road cuts through hundreds of acres of university farmland. Hill pulls over at a part of the farm where Carver conducted his experiments. It's still an active research site today. See if we can get the gate open. This is where we do most of our field crop work. Dr. Carver developed field techniques to help impoverished sharecroppers, promoting compost, manure, and leaves from the swamp instead of expensive chemical fertilizers. Some farmers prospered, but many of the poorest, most vulnerable left. His people, my people, the African-American, the black American, in the Black Belt region, left the South, seeking better opportunities, but many stayed, and the time we're in now, many are returning. Dean Hill has carried Carver's vision into the 21st century and gotten assistance from an unlikely source. Walmart's Sustainable Agriculture Initiative is buying blueberries, tomatoes, peaches, melons, strawberries, and peppers from small farms, including some in the Black Belt. It's still early, but Dean Hill is optimistic. The good thing is that the conversation between a giant like that, a global giant, and these small farmers, just amazing. Just amazing. Boy, you bring joy, happiness into their lives, and the people work harder than ever, and the children get to see their parents working on So they get all excited about it. I get excited, man. I'm excited. As Dean Hill speaks, he paints a vivid picture of Dr. Carver. He could walk along a little patch of grass like we see here, and he would see a thousand things. Whereas we're here looking, and we may see only 10, you know. And he would get a little closer, and in that micro area, he'd see another 50. Then he would also turn the soil. He would go deeper, because he understood. And he could project down two, three, four feet in his mind's eye and see the horizons, the different colors and shapes, the whole water and whole moisture and whole nutrients in different ways. And that's what it's all about, too. We've got to understand the soil, the water, the grass, the air, and we have to understand each other. He whispers something inaudible to a handful of soil and carefully pats it back into the earth, in the very place where George Washington Carver once dug. For Living on Earth and Planet Harmony, I'm Ike Sris Kandaraja. Happy Juneteenth. For photos, check out our website, LOE.org. And for more about our sister program, Planet Harmony, join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young. With help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Daniel Gross, Stephanie McPherson, and Anne-Marie Singh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. 
Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.